0: Let's open our Bibles or navigate on our devices to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you're visiting with us or here for the first time, we're studying through the book of 1 Corinthians verse by verse and chapter by chapter. We're in chapter 9. The topic, the Apostle Paul explains that it was for the sake of winning people to Jesus that he refused to take financial support from the church in Corinth. The title of our message I win them one peeps at a time, and it doesn't cost them a dime. <laughs> You'll know it's me when I come through your town. <laughs> oh man, where were you guys first service? It was bleak. First service was so bleak. I, I did, I, I finally asked, Has anybody ever heard of that song? One person raised their hand. Thank you. Thank you, Second Service. You've made my day. Let's just quit. No, let's get into it. So, Father, thank you so much for bringing this particular group of us together, Lord. Uh, We individually, those of us who are saved, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, but also collectively, Lord, when we gather, we are also your temple on earth, an absolutely unique structure within which lives can be saved for eternity, changed for time, Problems can be resolved. Perspectives can be uh, renewed. You can do healings, Lord, and pour out your blessings. I pray that you would do all your glorious work in each of our hearts today. And especially, Lord, if there's anyone here that's not a believer, they're not in Christ, draw them by your love. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. I don't think I'm ready for self-driving cars. They're also called autonomous vehicles, driverless cars, and robo-cars. One description reads like this. Self-driving cars combine a variety of sensors to perceive their surroundings, such as radar, lidar, sonar, GPS, odometry, and inertial measurement units. Advanced control systems interpret sensory information to identify appropriate navigation paths, as well as obstacles and relevant signage. Nova, the program on PBS, not the classic Chevrolet, which definitely is not self-driving, just released a pretty well-balanced documentary called Look Who's Driving. To grab your attention, it opens with the now famous Uber self-driving car accident that occurred last year, which took the life of a pedestrian. There was a driver behind the wheel, but the car was in autonomous driving mode. You and I aren't cars, but you could say we have to identify appropriate navigation paths as well as obstacles as we walk with Jesus, both in the church and, of course, out in the world. Do you remember the bumper sticker that read, Jesus is my co-pilot? How demeaning is that, that we had reduced Jesus to a co-pilot? That's terrible. Jesus better be piloting my life. But that doesn't mean we can kick back and enjoy the sights while Jesus takes the wheel. We're involved actively making decisions, determining how to interpret and apply the Bible as we make progress on the narrow way and look forward to reaching the golden city whose builder and maker is God. The Apostle Paul is going to tell us how he navigated. He mentions the gospel no less than nine times in these few verses in verses 12, 14, 16, 18, and 23. At the end, he'll defend his activities in the church and in the world among different groups by saying, now this I do for the gospel's sake. We too can navigate our walk with Jesus by the gospel. And so let's see what some of that means as we work through chapter nine. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, let the gospel determine when to waive your rights in the church. And number two, let the gospel determine when to waive your rights out in the world take a look at ourselves in the church first in verses 1 through 18. By the way, just finishing our thoughts about self-driving cars, human error causes about 94% of all serious motor vehicle accidents. Robots couldn't do much worse, could they? It might actually be helpful until they rise up against us. <laughs> you laugh. AI, we've been doing some prophecy updates on AI, artificial intelligence, When you really get into this thing, it is scary. Machines are talking to each other. They're evolving. I don't think they're going to like us. I'm going to go watch the new Terminator movie just to know how to defend myself. The gospel is that Jesus, God in human flesh, was crucified, buried, and rose again. He appeared to Peter and the other disciples and then to a great number at one time. In Romans, we read, he was crucified for our sins and then raised for our justification. So God could justify us, declare us righteous before him. Paul preached the gospel in Corinth. Men and women, mostly Gentiles, but also Jews, were saved. They began to seek each other out and gather together. But like any gathering of imperfect people, problems arose. Paul had written them a letter prior to this one in which he addressed their problems. The believers did not like his answers, So they disobeyed and disrespected Paul. But in order to feel justified in disobeying an apostle, they decided to take a second look at him. They suggested that he was not a real apostle like the 12. And so Paul said, here's my judgment on these things biblically. And they said, yeah, we don't like that. We don't want to do that. Uh, Maybe you're not an apostle. Maybe we don't have to listen to you. Paul felt he needed to answer that criticism, but he skillfully wove into his answer a bedrock principle for all time. You should be ready to waive your rights if exercising or demanding them might in some way hinder the gospel. So, verse one Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? These questions all require an exclamatory yes answer. Am I not an apostle? Yes, he was in the unique first century sense of laying the foundation for the church and exercising signs and wonders. Am I not free? As an apostle under the Lord's authority, he was free from anyone else's opinions or criticisms or leading. Have I not seen Jesus Christ, our Lord? Yes, he had on the road to Damascus when Jesus saved him. Are you not my work in the Lord? Of course they were. He had established that church. And so verse 2, he says, if I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. As I mentioned, Paul had founded their church and performed the miraculous works of an apostle among them. Even if others wanted to, they could not reasonably deny his apostleship in Corinth. Their criticism was a miscalculated dodge for their disobedience. Uh, You might even say, if Paul's not an apostle, how are you a church since he's the one that came and established the church and you got saved hearing the gospel through him and so it was a stupid argument but it, it just as a footnote a lot of times when we want to disobey the lord in some way we put up a stupid argument or what uh, you know to us seems to make perfect sense but it's really just a dodge and we need to Be more comfortable with each other and say, hey, that's not such a great argument. Or if you're really close to somebody, say, hey, that's stupid. That's not what the Bible says. My defense, verse 3, to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, which is another name for Peter? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? The next three yes questions reveal three specific criticisms the Corinthians leveled against Paul's apostleship. First, Paul did not ask them for support to be able to eat and drink. That's what he meant. He worked to support himself. Apparently, other apostles did receive support when they traveled, so they concluded Paul was not a bona fide apostle. He must not feel confident enough in his apostleship to ask for uh, support. Second, Paul and Barnabas didn't travel with wives like other apostles. And third, the Corinthians didn't think it was right for an apostle to work. This might be a criticism that Paul wasn't totally committed to the work of the ministry and uh, maybe was going to, you know, be more successful as Paul the tent maker and abandon them. Thus, they had formulated, however, their own criteria for apostleship. An apostle must receive support rather than support himself, and he must travel with his wife. Notice how fleshly that is, how carnal it is, how material it is. There's nothing spiritual about that description of an apostle. And so they're dealing with this immense spiritual reality. A man came out of nowhere, seemingly, and began to talk to them about Jesus who rose from the dead, and they were miraculously saved, and now in fellowship with one another, sharing their faith with others, and they had reduced all of that to this stupid formula. Well, you need to, uh, we need to support you and you need to travel with your wife. That, that's what it means to be an apostle. Verse seven, who goes to war at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? Who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? These three illustrations from everyday life show that the receiving of material support for your work is customary. Apostleship, although a calling, is work and those so-called have the right to support. Uh, I do not say these things as a mere man, or does not the law say them also? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about, or does he say it another, altogether rather for our own sake? For our sakes, no doubt this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. So this law that Paul is quoting is Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. The ox was permitted to eat of the grain while he labored, pulling the grinding wheel. And by this, Paul indicated that it was intended to be applied to the proper treatment of human laborers. The worker is worthy of his wages. Now, he had just, you know, been talking about not taking support. And now he's got all these illustrations of the right to take support and, and it sounds a little confusing. I think if you're in the audience at Corinth, you maybe think what well, we should have attacked Paul on is his logic because he's not making any sense. And then he goes on and he says in verse 11, if we have sown spiritual things for you, it is, a great, it, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Stop there. So far, this is a strange defense. Paul seems to be agreeing with them. An apostle does have the right to receive support. Paul and his colleagues had even more occasion to be supported by them, having founded the church by leading them to Christ. And so where was he going with this? Well, in verse 12, he goes on to say, nevertheless, we have not used this right, but we endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. It never occurred to them that Paul was voluntarily waiving his rights and that he was doing it for them. And not for himself. I find this really sad. Uh, they knew the testimony of Paul. I mean, this guy, when he traveled, he was in danger of robbers. He was robbed several times. He said he was left naked by the side of the road. Shipwrecked many, many times. Beaten, thrown into jail. At one time, he was stoned to death and was raised from the dead. I mean, he, this guy, apostle life was hard. It, it was difficult. And for this group of people who he had come to at great peril to share Christ, to have these criticisms, well, you're not a real apostle because you won't let us pay you. Uh, it's, it's petty, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I, the grace of God through Paul is amazing. I mean, do, don't you want to just wash your hands and say, hey, I don't have anything to do with these people. You know, what, what, what's it all about? Why do I suffer for people like this? Not that Paul was looking for accolades or honor or anything special, but they were going out of their way to undermine him and demean him. And yet he says, hey, I did this for you. I gave up my rights for you. And then it also tells us how far afield they were. They're not the kind of people that would give up their rights for anything. And Paul says, hey, you know, you're know, you a servant of Jesus Christ. You're a slave to the Lord. And sometimes that requires sacrifice. Verse 13, do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple? and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar. Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. In God's temple at Jerusalem and in every pagan temple throughout the empire, priests were materially supported by those they ministered to. It was the expected, accepted practice. How much more are deserving the ministers of the gospel? I think now Paul is adding this here because he doesn't want to give the impression that Everybody has to follow his example. So he says, hey, I gave up my rights to support in this particular situation among you in Corinth, led by the Lord, I would say. But this isn't a universal principle. It's expected that the minister of the temple and the minister of the gospel would receive support. Those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. If we're being ministered to spiritually, then we should support the ministry materially. Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Paul needed to answer the accusation that he was not a real apostle, but the point he really wanted to make was that he waived his rights as an apostle in order to be most effective in sharing Jesus Christ with others. Verse 15, I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things that it should be done so to me, for it would be better for me to die. Than that anyone should make my boasting void. A paraphrase of this reads Still, I want it made clear that I've never gotten anything out of this for myself. I'm not writing now to get something. I'd rather die than give anyone ammunition to discredit me or impugn my motives. And so Paul wasn't asking for back pay, he wasn't demanding his wages. Um, when we do movie talk in our family, sometimes somebody will say, Well, what do I owe you? And we always say, You owe us $32,000 in legal fees. Comes from the movie Cars when Toe Mater decides that he had been defending Lightning the Queen. It's a, just one of those great lines. Of course, if you use it on somebody that doesn't know that, they're offended. But anyway. So uh, he, he, he wasn't trying to get something now. He wasn't saying, yeah, as a matter of fact, you guys do owe me and I have it all calculated. He had waived those rights. So you have the right to waive your rights, which you should if the gospel warrants it in a particular situation. Uh, if you want to get some examples of this, just follow the uh, missionary journeys of Paul. One instance, he's arrested in Philippi and thrown into the dungeon. You remember that's when they had the rock concert and he and Silas were singing and the gates of the prison opened and the prisoners were going to escape. But Paul said, don't escape. Uh, This is God. And then the jailer and his family got saved. And then they went back to jail. And the next morning, the city officials came and they released him. And as Paul was turning to go, he says, guys, by the way, one thing I should have told you yesterday, I'm a Roman citizen. what they had done to him was absolutely illegal, and they could be disciplined for it severely. Why did Paul, did he not remember the day before? Did he have dementia the day before? Did he forget that he was a Roman citizen? For whatever reason, the Holy Spirit put it on his heart not to claim his citizenship until the next day. And Paul was always doing stuff like that, not for himself, but for the sake of the gospel. He seems extra sensitive to any accusation that he preached the gospel for material gain. He thus refused pay for it. So no one could impugn him and thereby cast doubt on the gospel itself. Uh, one of the criticisms, some of your friends and family probably have made to you about Christians is that they're just in it for the money because they see some of these people on television or hear them on the radio. And you know what? They're just in it for the money. Uh, but, you know, uh, that's not true of the majority of ministers of the gospel around the world and throughout time. But Paul said, hey, if I don't take any money, then that's not an issue. Think about that word die. Obviously, it's a hyperbole to emphasize just how serious it is to be hindering the gospel. Wages are never the issue, winning souls is the issue. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul didn't choose his course of life. Jesus did, especially when he saved Paul on the road to Damascus and set him forward. Verse 17, for this, if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. I find myself consulting alternate translations quite a lot this week. Here in verse 17, uh, or here is one in verse 17, If this was my own idea of just another way to make a living, I'd expect some pay. But since it's not my idea, but something solemnly entrusted to me, why would I expect to get paid? And so Paul said, hey, this apostleship, the ministry I have, it's not a career choice. I didn't go to a career fair after college and decide to go into the ministry because of the great benefit package or because you only have to work a few hours on Sunday every week and the rest of the time you can play golf. You don't want to see me play golf, believe me. Can you tee it up out in the fairway? No? I do. Anyway, I'm a terrible golfer, but that's the idea. Paul said, hey, this isn't, this isn't like, you know, I'm not a shipbuilder or something like that. I'm a tent maker by trade so that I can support myself, but the ministry is completely different. His approach to being an apostle was that it was more like a stewardship and that he was more like a steward. A steward, who's usually a slave, was one who had been entrusted with managing a household. Such a person was not entitled to pay. Their needs were met by the master and he provided everything required and requested for the carrying out of his orders. What is my reward then, verse 18, that when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge, that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. It was rewarding to Paul to present the gospel of Christ without charge. And it kept him from abusing his apostolic authority in that he could relate to their daily struggles, many of whom were stewards and slaves themselves. And so he, um, there's something to be, I, I don't know all the reasons why he decided not to take support in Corinth, but logically one of them is you're more like your congregation in the sense that they work for a living. And uh, you can see what it's like to be out in that field and working with uh, your hands and all that. Another, obviously, is you have more contact with non-believers uh, because you've got people coming in and wanting you to make tents for you and canvases and sails and things like that. And you can strike up a conversation with them. And so Paul had his reasons, and they were all about the gospel, not about his personal gain or uh, his comfort. It was about the gospel. It wouldn't be a misuse of these verses to examine our own lives. Is there something I am doing or that I am not doing that is hindering the gospel from being preached by me? Better yet, we might ask, am I a self-driving Christian or am I navigating by the gospel with Jesus piloting? Uh, Let's move into the second topic, let the gospel determine when to waive your rights in the world. Church planting is a commendable activity, uh, but I think there is way too much church planting where there are already churches. Anytime somebody says to me they're going to San Diego to plant a church, I just, I just walk away. Uh, you know, they, Why don't they just say, I feel like doing ministry and it seems like San Diego would be a great place to do it. Because there's, there's tons. You can't tell me there's not a church that you can find in San Diego already that, that meets all of your needs. There's umpteen Calvary chapels alone. Uh, so if you don't like one, go to the other one. But so the idea, uh, now there are reasons to plant churches where there are churches. Uh, every situation is unique as long as you have a leading from the Lord. So why am I talking about this? Because this wasn't the case in the first century. Paul went to Corinth There weren't any Christians, there wasn't a church, and then there were Christians and there was a church. In his travels, he would encounter Jews first in the synagogue and then Gentiles outside of the synagogue. The two groups were wildly different. Jews especially didn't want to have anything to do with Gentiles. They wouldn't eat with them. There was a huge prejudice, obviously because they were a subjected people. Uh, And Gentiles didn't care much for Jews either. That seems to have carried over into every generation since the beginning of time. Uh, The Jews are still persecuted and looked down on. Uh, The gospel, however, is universal. Jesus is the savior of all men, especially those who believe. As the messenger of the gospel, Paul had to fit in with both groups. He thus had to waive certain rights accordingly so that he didn't offend either group. So verse 19, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. Paul was free from all men in the sense that he could live as he pleased among all men so long as he didn't sin. He decided to exercise his freedom in an unusual way by giving it up in order to serve all men. I don't know if this was an issue for Paul, but he could eat a bacon cheeseburger. He was a Jew by birth and heritage, but he'd been set free from the law. He didn't need any more to keep the dietary laws. And so he could cruise into Carl's Jr. and eat a bacon cheeseburger. He probably didn't eat bacon cheeseburgers around Jews because it would be offensive. But he probably scarfed them down around Gentiles. You don't know. And to the Jews, I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. So Paul was kosher around Jews because they were still under the law of Moses before they got saved. And even after they got saved, it was tough for them to come out of Judaism, and that was a problem in the first century. They practiced circumcision. They observed dietary restrictions. They celebrated certain days on the calendar. Among them, he could function as under the law, not under it thinking that it was saving him, but he he could go along with certain things. He could respect customs without adopting them as being necessary for salvation. He could participate with them up to a point. He could limit certain liberties because he loved the Jews and wanted to see them get saved. So Paul, I'm sure, pushed the limits and got right up to the edge so that he could minister to the Jews. And I would guess that there was a lot of criticism of him by others that he was too Jewish. But then I'm sure they criticized him for being too much like a Gentile as well. And and there are ministries out there like this where, you know, I, I, I try to reserve as much criticism as possible, believe it or not. Uh, because I'm not in certain arenas. People say, hey, I want to minister to this group of people. And then we say, oh, look at what they're doing. That, that's, that's carnal. That's fleshly. I would never do that. But what are you doing to minister to those people? Nothing. If they want to come here, that's fine. And so we need to give people some, some liberty. Sometimes they overdo it, and they are doing things they shouldn't. But there are people and people groups out there that we need to reach. Those without the law of Moses are Gentiles. Everybody that's not a Jew is a Gentile. Around them, Paul was not kosher. He did not insist they be circumcised or they restrict their diet or they observe certain holy days. He acted as if he were without law. He meant that his behavior around Gentiles was not in strict outward conformity with the law of Moses. So if Paul was invited to a Gentile home, for example, he wouldn't have to go through ceremonial washings before he could sit down and eat. Uh, and, uh, you know, all these other things that a Jew would normally do. And so he would be a very unusual Jew to a Gentile, and then he would use that to be able to explain how Jesus Christ has set him free. Around Christians who had a weak conscience about certain questionable things, he would limit his liberty. In their case, he wasn't trying to win them to salvation. His use of win is in the sense of not seeing them stumbled in their walk. You remember last week, I think this chapter ended, or pretty close to the end, Paul says, if eating meat sacrificed to idols stumbles my brother, I'll never eat meat again. And so that was his perspective. I don't want to stumble the weak. Note the phrase in parentheses in verse 21, no matter who he was around, Paul never violated biblical morality, never diluted or altered the message. His methods were adaptable in order that Jesus might be glorified through his sharing of the gospel. And so, um, you know, I can't use any example of an ethnicity, otherwise somebody will get offended. I would use Italians, but we're perfect, so. (laughs) Now, this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be a partaker of it with you. It may require what seems to be sacrifice, but it's really a very small sacrifice because you embrace representing Christ as an ambassador, and that's a great and precious privilege. It is by those sacrifices of his liberty that Paul was a partaker of the gospel. Partake can mean participate. He was more interested in participating with God and with Christians in sharing the gospel than he was in participating in some personal liberty. Uh, You know, it's not that Paul was always out passing out tracts or stuff like that, but he didn't want to claim certain rights that would hinder him from doing that. He said, hey, none of that's really as important as saving souls. And I'm sure, like all of us, he needed to remind himself, "I'll have a long time and eternity to do that." If you, if there's something you want to do and you can't do it, and and it's it's sad, I understand. Place you want to go or visit, you just don't have the money, or you don't have the health anymore, or whatever. That's that's sad. But you're going to heaven, and whatever's there is is better than whatever's here. Uh, and it, it's going to be a short time, you know, between now and then. Whether you die of uh, before the rapture or whether you're raptured. And so let's have a better perspective on stuff like that. And so Paul said, I, I don't want to, you, know, I, I, you know, drinking coffee isn't so important to me that I'm going to have it hinder the gospel. I wish. <laughs> that kind of a thing. And of course, drinking coffee shouldn't offend anybody because it's good for you and God gave it to us to enjoy. <laughs> you know, have you seen the meme that's going around today? Everybody sends it to me because of coffee. Uh, They point out that just, uh, I think, two years before the Great Reformation under Martin Luther, coffee came to Europe. You put it together. (laughs) I say coffee was responsible for the Reformation. Uh, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things, now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Corinth sponsored what was called the Isthmian Games. These contests were second only to the Olympics in Athens in terms of fame and popularity. An athlete in training is temperate in all things. That means, of course, they exercise self-restraint in every area in order to be at their very best. They have a special diet, sleep cycle, social and personal calendars in order to be at their best. I remember when in Rocky 1, Nick tells Rocky he can't see his girlfriend anymore. Because women weaken legs. Okay. So he couldn't, he couldn't hang out with uh, Adrian anymore. There's <laughs> the only two real impressions that I can do, because one's Italian and one's gruff. Anyway. <laughs> Therefore, I thus run, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. Paul's being funny here. When he said not with uncertainty, he's picturing a runner who upon hearing the go started running in the wrong direction and then doesn't have the finish line in view, but runs all over the place. For emphasis, he switched from the track to the ring, pictured a boxer beating the air. He's not talking about shadow boxing. That is a good training discipline. He's picturing a boxer coming out and throwing punches that don't land. Again, my man Rocky, the end of the first movie, which is one of the classic great top 10 movies of all time pretty good. At the end of that movie, remember he comes out, and he's fighting Apollo Creed and he keeps throwing punches that don't land. And then Apollo Creed starts to mimic him until Rocky crushes him with a left hand and let's go. He knew he couldn't beat him, but he just wanted to go to distance. Should we switch and talk about Rocky now? <laughs> a lot of spiritual analogies there. And so that's what he was talking about. He says, hey, I, I, I don't want to run in the wrong direction or, or just throw punches." I discipline my body and bring it unto subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Discipline here has the sense of self-denial, obviously. Like an athlete, he denied himself certain things among various groups in order to win people. And so he said, hey, I'm in training to be an apostle running with the gospel and boxing with the gospel among Gentiles. So how do I need to train? What do I need to keep out of my diet? What do I need to put into my diet? Where do I need to hang out? Um, Those kinds of things so that a Gentile will be open to my sharing of the gospel with them and likewise with the Jews. He didn't want to end the race on earth and be disqualified. Obviously, he's thinking of his future meeting with Jesus in heaven after he died or was raptured as if it were the reward seed of the gains. There, the victorious athlete would be given the laurel wreath and earn the praises of the judge. Or he could be disqualified for any of a number of things. that You can all think of, especially Olympic athletes over the last few years who've been disqualified because of uh, drugging and, you know, the things that are in their system and all that. Let me point out something so that you're not uh, uh, confused. This word disqualified really throws people, if this is still part, and it is, of the analogy of the illustration, rather. An athlete who was disqualified from the games lost his reward, but he remained a Roman citizen and wasn't eternally lost. And so Paul isn't talking about salvation. He isn't saying, if I run in vain or, you know, if, I don't, if I'm not disciplined enough, I'm going to forfeit my salvation. He's talking about the loss of reward the same way an athlete would lose the laurel wreath because they cheated. Lance Armstrong, right? They stripped him of all of his titles, is that correct? Because they found he was doing weird stuff. And so that's the idea. Uh, you forfeit your eternal rewards. And even before you get to the end of your race, you forfeit your effectiveness for Jesus and you'll hinder your testimony. Let me give you an example. It's a fast one, it's a quick one. A Calvary pastor that we know, I've been in the system for a long time, called to minister in Mexico. Gave up his American citizenship and became a Mexican citizen. Now, should everybody do that? No. no, The Bible doesn't say that we have to do that. But he was led to do that in his situation. That was his personal application of this kind of principle. He felt that if he was going to minister in that way, he should be a Mexican citizen. And I can at least understand that because we've been on lots of mission trips over the years And sometimes being the American, uh, you know, you're put on a pedestal that you don't want to be on uh, and looked up to and things like that. And so he didn't want to go down there and be the American ministering in Mexico. He didn't want it to seem like it was a mission that he could leave at a moment's notice. So he gave up his citizenship and became a Mexican citizen. And I know our thought is, I would never do that, or why can't he be dual citizenship or whatever? Uh, but that's the idea nobody says you have to do that but at some point in your christian walk you're gonna have to do something like that maybe many things like that but there has to come a time when this becomes real to each of us and we say ah am i going to demand my rights or am i going to give them up for the sake of the gospel that's what we're talking about your destination is heaven by way of the reward seat of jesus christ Jesus needs to take the wheel, but you are navigator. You do it by the gospel, adorning the gospel, never hindering it. Let's pray.